I was stationed just outside of, of Kassel, Germany, and so I went back in the early 80s, and actually I was in the, I was in Kassel to try to pull the screenplay off of the novel, which is forthcoming. One of the things that I couldn't get right in this screenplay, I just couldn't seem to get a sense of this kind of underlying current, particularly when we talked to the older folks, and as I say in the story, there was the usual, you know, we, we, we want your money, but you, we don't want you dating our daughters, and then I began talking to this woman who opened De Neuvelt, the New World, which is a, a guest house. And Kassel, it turned out, was one of the cities that was bombed absolutely level. And not only was it bombed, it was firebombed. And the British uh, killed 10,000 people. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind their stories, the writing process, and any other miscellaneous writing stuff that we decide to talk about. Today we have author Don Singleton, who has penned two short story collections. Don is a former North Carolinian who served a stint in the U.S. Army and then took a hard turn into academia. After studying creative writing at the University of North Carolina and then UCLA, he began work in radio, opening the first NPR station in West Virginia and the second NPR station in Little Rock, Arkansas. He earned his doctorate in mass communications and political communication from the University of Oklahoma and then took on several professor positions with several universities, including the University of Oklahoma, University of Arkansas, and even the one here in our backyard, Salisbury University. Throughout his life, Don has been passionate about political and civil rights activism, as well as writing short fiction stories. In fact, his newest collection is called The Nicotine Kid and Other Stories. Welcome to the podcast, Don. Nice to be here. Thank you. Great. Um, one of the things that I wanted to kind of hit right away, and it's it, it sort of struck me as I was going through The Nicotine Kid this time, and that is um, authority figures sometimes uh, tend to be shown in uh, unflattering lights or in a bit of a disparaging sense. And there's, uh, you know, the, the stories of the military, some of the commanders are sometimes look buffoonish and sometimes in the stories that you do about academia and the college and some of the professor pieces, some of the administration looks that way. And a few stories have had sheriffs that were kind of dim-witted. So as I was going through it, I'm like, I wonder if Don doesn't like authority. Well, <laughs> it, it's called telling it like it is. So <laughs> it's, bureaucracies tend to protect themselves, and some of the worst behavior you will ever see comes out of bureaucracies when people get into that CYA mode, as, as we call it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very much an anti-authoritarian. <laughs> One of the things that I noticed in your reading is that you also don't seem to have a great affinity for, uh, well, we live in chicken area, and I don't know if you're just offended by the smell of chicken, because North Carolina is big in chicken as well, and I don't know if you're, if that's the offense, or if I, I have, I'm not real thrilled with the Delmarva Peninsula usually, and that'll come out when I'm writing. It'll, I'll take the cheap shot for no good reason, just when I can. And I, I was wondering, like, you chose to use the word chicken shit rather than guano or manure or spreading or any of those things. So it seemed it seemed kind of aggressive. Well, it, it, again, it's telling it like it is. Uh, if, if you have ever lived in close proximity uh, to a farm where chicken manure was spread, 
uh, it doesn't take very long for you to uh, to gin up uh, a, a real <laughs> negative reaction to this stuff. Do you so. think? Do you think the real estate agents really know? I mean, because I I, I live very close to one, and I didn't catch a whiff until after I after I signed my uh, my mortgage promise. Oh, the real, real estate agents are not going to tell you. I shopped for for a house down here. Uh, three years ago, actually, when I retired, I shopped all over the country, and it was amazing the stuff you run into that real estate agents don't tell you. They're in the business of selling houses, but I looked at a house that uh, that was between uh, uh, Salisbury and Berlin, and it it took me a it took me a minute trying to figure out why this house, which which was really quite lovely, was for sale as cheaply as it was, and so went round to the back, and it's facing the fan from a large chicken house. And I went, okay, we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> that would probably kill it so, for me yeah. too. So how did you, how did you come to start writing short stories? Is this, well, if I were going to describe myself, I'd probably describe myself as a failed writer. Uh, I started out, uh, I started out at the university of North Carolina, um, in, um, in creative writing, and that was in radio. I was in the radio, television, film department, because at the time that happened to be where the best creative writing program was and I won a number of prizes for, for screenwriting and that's primarily what I was interested in uh, but I wrote some short stories and I won a couple of prizes for short stories and then over over the years I tried my hand at, at writing commercial fiction uh, and discovered that very much like the West Coast that's pretty much a closed loop and everything everything comes out of New York and you, you have to spend your time wooing those folks in order to get your stuff published um, as somebody once said, Joel, Joyce Carroll submitted a short story a week, you know, for five years or something until she finally got three lines on, on page 85, you know. So, uh, um, but it, it's just, you know, there's some people who have to be writers. I guess I'm kind of one of those. So. Right. And so I noticed um, in both your first work that was called Pokemon Rules, there were stories in there where there are, you know, sort of the military, you know, backgrounds. And that occurs again in Nicotine Kid, you know, sort of writing these sort of... Uh, these almost vignettes, I guess, of these, you know, people and going through these experiences and, um, travel also, um, you know, there was, I guess you were overseas. So there's sort of that, that sense of traveling in some of your stories. I know there was the one called the best gas chambers and Pocomo rolls. And then we've got that die Newelt in this one. Okay. Right. So there's that sense of travel, you know, between both things. So it seems like at least, you know, knowing you a little bit and then having read the stories, it seems like you draw heavily on those, you know, being a professor and, and in the military and traveling and, and those, you know, perspectives seem to fall into your writing. Well, well, they say everything is grist for the writer's mill. And, and I guess I'm a perfect example of that. You just take the, take the, the experiences that you've had and then you need them and and wait until they rise, and then you have a short story. It's kind of like baking bread. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I tend to, to fold those those experiences. And the military experiences, there are a couple of those. Uh, the first one, uh, I, I think, in the in the first story was was a story called the Grease Pit, and uh, then in this one, uh, there's a story called Catching Ditties Makes Me Sick. And a part of my training was, was as an 058, uh, a Morse code intercept operator. 
And I was working, I was in the Army Security Agency, which answered directly to the National Security Agency. And what we were trying to do was monitor the Russians, uh, particularly their low-level tactical communication, which was in Morse code. And uh, one, this, this, this story is based on, on that experience. Uh, uh, there were rows of, of seats. We sat down. Uh, the instructor said, put them on, go to work. And they put them on with the headphones, the cans, as we call them. And the, the tape started, and it started teaching you Morse code. And uh, it went, da alpha, dot dit, 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 bravo, da di da dit, Charlie. And... Uh, then once it went through the went through the alphabet and the Cyrillic characters and the numbers, then the tape started at three words a minute, and and it came di 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 da di 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 da so on so, and a guy three three positions down from me, it, about four characters in just threw up in his mill. These were big huge typewriters and he just went bah, into the mill. <laughs> so you can imagine you can imagine what a mess that was. So so catching ditties makes me sick as literal this this guy <laughs> threw up and then came back came back after lunch and threw up again and then then he disappeared. We didn't see him anymore. <laughs> so I assumed they didn't want to clean up the typewriters in the mess. So uh, yeah, these are experiences that I folded into these stories. Well, one of the there was one story that you when we were talking about uh, the nicotine kid that really sort of grabbed me uh, was the Diane Welt story and how that kind of turned around. Would you sort of just share that on the podcast? Because that that was a really sort of that that was a moment I think. It, 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 it I was stationed just outside of, of Kassel, Germany, and. In Kassel, Germany, every five years is something called Documenta, and it's international. It's an international art exposition, and so I went back for that in the early '80s. And actually, I was in uh, I was in Kassel to try to pull the screenplay off of the novel, which is forthcoming. And uh, one of the things that I couldn't get right in this screenplay, I just couldn't seem to get a sense of this kind of underlying current. Uh, Particularly, when we talk to the older folks in in Germany, and uh, and as I say in the story, there was the usual, you know, we, we, we want your money, but you, we don't want you dating our daughters, you know, and that's that's pretty typical of, of military installations in the United States as well. But there was this kind of real, real strange undercurrent, and I couldn't get my head around that. And then I began talking to this woman who opened De Neuvelt, the New World, which is a, a guest house, and. Uh, so I began to talk to her about the history of Kassel. And Kassel, it turned out, was one of the cities that was bombed absolutely level. And not only was it bombed, it was firebombed. And so in, a, in over a two-day period, uh, the British, with flights of mosquitoes, which was a very fast fighter bomber, uh, killed 10,000 people. And then one of uh, the really terrible scenes was uh, uh, this young man who was an engineer, and he was on the Eastern Front fighting the Russians. All the Germans were on the Eastern Front fighting the Russians. Never met one who was on the Western Front fighting the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, and never had any high-ranking relatives. Absolutely. All foot soldiers. Absolutely not. And... Uh, uh, but he came home, as she described it, found the the charred corpses 
of his wife and two children, and she was expecting a third child. And so he, in full dress uniform, lay down beside them, took out his service pistol and blew his brains out. So, and, and that was as close to true as you get, I think. And all of a sudden you understand, and there was a fellow standing over in the corner who said, that's all true, and this is fair guessing. I will never forget. And, and so you get it just in that instant, you know, what's going on here. There's a, this kind of undercurrent is, is, you know, it, it's, uh, those of us who were alive and went through this will never get over it. It's kind of, kind of a post-traumatic stress syndrome. So. Right. And so when you're, so as a writer, when you are hearing that kind of story, your brain's going, I have to write that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 You talk about, you know, grist for the, for the mill. I mean, when you were sitting down telling me this, you know, when, you know, we, I think I tend to think, or I tend to prefer to think that writers are a little more sensitive to the world around them. Maybe we're hypersensitive, uh, but I think we tend to be a little more sensitive to the world around us. So you're in this environment where you're like, I'm not really sure why I'm getting this like subtle, like resentful feedback. I don't never been here. You know, I'm kind of new here. And, but then when you talk to someone and then that kind of story comes to front, like, Oh yeah, by the way, you guys leveled our town, killed 10,000 of our people. And you know, all of these things happen. That's when the writer brain goes like, you know, it just sort of just kind of hits hyperdrive or at least I I like to think that way. I agree with you. I, I was actually thinking on the way over here that my experience is almost like can, does nobody else see this? How come? How come they? How come no one else is seeing it? And then I'm like, well, they're not seeing it the way I'm seeing it. Now I have to tell them. Like I have to tell everyone what they're missing because it's way cooler in my head than it yeah. is in yours. Yeah. You know. When, when I was stationed just outside of Kassel years and years and years ago, there was a rumor that circulated among our troops that the reason the British had bombed Kassel absolutely flat. Uh, was an act of retribution because uh, they had shot down one of the British bombers and the pilots had had parachuted out and the local people had pitchforked them to death. Now, that was the rumor that, that circulated, okay? And I never could confirm that, and I couldn't find anybody who, who could would confirm that. Uh, but recently, uh, a friend of mine who is German... Uh, sent me a website, and in this website, it turns out that this incident actually happened, but it was not a British plane, it was an American plane, and it happened to the north of, of Kossel somewhat. The plane went down, they captured the the American flyers, and they the the train was bombed out, and they had to march them through this little town, and when they marched them through the little town, the people in town tried to kill them. So, and there, there was one guy who was already injured and they had been put in an ambulance and he survived. And two, I think, maybe of, of the, of the airmen survived badly beaten, but there were three of them who were beaten to death. So, so this incident actually occurred, but it occurred much further to north. But that was kind of circulated among, among our troops when I was there as the reason they had so destroyed Kossel. So, it, it, you know, it's very complicated. I can't wait to get back to the typewriter for that one. <laughs> you use the type on a typewriter? What? You, you, are you still using a typewriter? I, no, like, no, 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 oh, gosh, no. Oh, like, no. whoa, talk about kicking it vintage style. That would no, be- well, I, I, I did for years and years and years, but not anymore now. So speaking of 
getting back to the typewriter. You have a collection, so this is your second collection. Yes. What is what is your process for doing the collecting? Like, how do you decide what what to keep, what not to keep? Do you have, for instance, if there were a third collection to come out, is it already half done at home? Like, you write one and you let it sit, and then you're like, okay, I got to twenty. Now it's time to go. How does how how does collecting work? I I have a list of short story ideas uh, in a file on my computer, and as I come across things that that aggravate me or bug me, and I I put them in that list, and so then as I finish one, uh, then I, I come back and I'll look at my list and I go, huh, that's the one I want to do, and so I just go right down the list. Uh, one of the really one of the really useful things. Um, particularly in terms of this this second book, most of the stories in the first book I had written, and they were just sitting around at, at, at my house. And uh, so uh, I cabbaged them up and, and turned them into the first collection. But this collection primarily was done because I belong to a writer's group, and it's like a homework assignment. Every two weeks you have to show up and read something. And so in that two-week period, if I really am conscientious, I'll turn out a short story. And, and I, will, I will take it to the writer's group and read it, and sometimes in two parts or three parts or whatever. So that's the way this one, this one came to be. Well, let's shout out the writer's group. Which writer's group are you a member of? It, it's called the Lord Delmarva Writers and something group. <laughs> and got, some where, do you guys, where do you guys meet? We, we, we meet typically at Hunan Restaurant every two weeks, Sunday at 2 o'clock in Salisbury. I, we are members of a writer's association here, the Lower Eastern Shore Writers Association. And Stephanie and I particularly are struggling with the fact that we have so little interest in joy. Like everybody's like, we should have a writer's group. And I said, hey, you should have a writer's group. Um, so what are, what do you do? Do you really feel like it's a good, it's a benefit to you? Um, what, what is, what are the ups and downs of, of being a part of something like that? Well, it's, it's been enormously beneficial for me, uh, because I can, I can think up, you know, probably 300 excuses why I, I shouldn't sit down and write. I can always find something else to do. Uh, but with this kind of homework assignment in the back of my mind, uh, I got two weeks, and so I got to spend some time working on this short story. And I tend to produce these pretty quickly. You know, once I have the basic idea and once I know where I'm going with the story, then I can turn them out pretty quickly. And and so in that two-week period, typically uh, I will kind of on demand, you know, crank one of these stories out. So I always feel like I work better with the deadline kind of hanging over my head. And if it's a self-imposed deadline, then I have then I have no deadline. It has to be like I owe someone else because I can say, all right, I'm going to have this done the end of March. And I'm like, yeah, I'll do it the first of, first of April, uh, the last, you know, but in, but if I, you know, think if, I think if there were, you know, when I have deadlines over my head, that something absolutely has to be done. Oh, it gets done. But I don't know why, I don't know why writers are built that way. You know, it just seems it's like the writing process seems to be mostly procrastination, staring at the internet and doing various other things and very little like hammering it out sometimes. I always have admired writers who have this absolute schedule who get up at six o'clock in the morning and they write a thousand words every day. And, and I'm just not disciplined to do that. Of course, one of the probably least interesting things uh, to talk about is, is how writers write or whatever. But uh, in, in, 
in Denoria Vale, I taught, that was probably the most disciplined I ever was because I'm trying to pull a screenplay out of a novel, which is tough enough. And I got up every morning and I worked from, from 6.30 or 7 o'clock until noon. That was, and I had, I described this routine. Okay. And I did that and then I had lunch and then I went to the park and I, I did my daily run. And then I kind of went downtown and drank myself insensate. <laughs> went home, collapsed, went to bed, got up the next day and did it again. And, and that probably was the most disciplined I've ever been. Again, I can find 300 reasons, three other, uh, 300 other things to do rather than sit down and write and do what I'm supposed to do. So, so this group's been really good for me. So. Good. And I think I would like to, just not that I want to put a footnote on what you said. We are members of the Lower Eastern Shore chapter of the Maryland Writers Association. And what you're balking at is not being a member of our writing group. You're balking at the critique group. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. You made it sound like you were balking at our entire writers oh, group. I, I, I apologize to any of our any of our writer friends who are listening, unless those writer friends are the ones who want to start the critique group. And I'm happy. I'm happy for you. <laughs> he just Tony was just, not a big fan of, uh, you know being and participating in the critique group but i think i i don't have a lot of i don't have a lot of time and energy like i have i'm fortunate that i have a, a strong support group of other other writers who i already work with and it's not it's not a critique group but it doesn't need to be it's hey will you take a look at this for me hey will you take a look at this for me and we can go back and forth like that and that is pretty much all i need and also um i i i write professionally on the internet and you know i have ten thousand people who are happy to tell me how poorly i've done <laughs> <laughs> every time i publish something yeah. so yeah. well there's there, <laughs> I don't think, there's yeah. ten thousand and one i think there's a story in here you'll love it's called criticism and i'm not a big fan of of i'm not a big fan of writers conferences i'm not a big fan of of writer writing seminars for for various reasons uh uh but this this one kind of is 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 a vent at at a writing seminar that i attended when this with this very kind of pompous guy uh who was in who was into postmodern stuff which i think i won't tell you what i think (laughs) (laughs) i think you just did the story the story pretty much expresses that but it, it it you know critique when i'm finished i'm finished i'm done and and i i really don't want folks fooling with that um a friend of mine who belongs to this writer's group and i attended a writer's group further up on this shore which we will not name and after and and jim's pretty much the same way when he's done he's done i mean this story's done and uh and and all of a sudden we we, we got this kind of english 101 uh, uh, nitpicking and everybody had an opinion. You know, why didn't you do this and why didn't you do that and why don't you do this and why don't you do that? And, and Jim came out and said, why don't you write your own damn stories? <laughs> you <know? laughs> so, yeah, I, I sort of yeah. feel like that's, that's tends to be <clears throat> actually Barbara Lockhart, who was our, a previous podcast person. I think we were talking about this maybe in that podcast, but maybe not. But I know she and I discussed that there tends to be when I was writing crossings, I was working with a professor. You've been a professor and you know what that mentoring relationship is like. So, you know, when I was a student writing these stories that, you know, eventually went on for the Sophie Kerr prize, I was working with a professor 
that I trusted. I trusted that professor's expertise. I trusted them when they said, this isn't working. I'm like, well, this professor's published, teaches, does all these sorts of things. I can instinctively trust that. I don't know if I just instinctively trust another writer who, I don't know. There was something about that, something about their expertise, something about their position, something about their perspective that I inherently trusted. So I think for me, not necessarily a critique group of like six other, you know, failed writers, uh, you know, <laughs> we're all sitting around being like, this didn't work. That didn't work. I think I tend to take it more I, I'm, I'm more readily accept that advice when I feel like this, I can trust the source. I don't know. It may be trusting the source, but I think it also is knowing they're right. Like if you want the story to be good and you know that they want the story to be good. When, when I get back, when I get back notes, I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm some like, I'll get back another video like that. That third paragraph. I'm like, I know it was wonky, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, and you find that they're really just calling you on you cheating yourself. You're like, yeah, it'll be fine. And they're like, yeah, no, it wasn't fine. <laughs> and you know it. And I know it. And that's when I rarely get back criticism that makes me say they're wrong. Sometimes I say, I don't agree with them, but I have to give it a shot. Almost always I say, yes, your suggestion might not be what I want to do. Like if you say, hey, why don't you change that to this? Eh. But all you have to say to me oftentimes is change that. And I'll be, yeah, that totally needs to be changed. And I think that's the difference between getting good criticism when they want you to change the words, when they're not 100% sure whether that should be a comma or a semicolon. I don't, I don't need to have that discussion. Yeah. But I when they're like, just... this isn't working, you know, and you know it. I mean, at, at your core, you're like, well, this, this is what I meant in my head, but it didn't come out on the page. And if it had come out on the page, they wouldn't have said anything. And I think that's where you get the best kinds of criticism. Yeah, I think we just had this conversation about commas, you know, that like, why is the comma so darn subjective? I feel like it is the most subjective piece of punctuation that exists. And I, I just, I, and you and I were going through this, like th there are people who get just kind of like kind of vomit commas onto a yeah, page and exactly. there are some people that have never heard of it, yeah. you know? And it, 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 I taught creative writing, taught screenwriting and, and I, I used to say to the students, you know, here's your toolbox. Okay. This, these, these are the things you need to have, you know, get a copy of Strunk and White's Elements of Style, get the book. Okay. Yes. Uh, and, and you need to get the thesaurus and you need a good dictionary and you need the whole handbook of English. Okay. And there are all of these rules in there and you probably should learn them all. Okay. But when, when you write, you probably want to write for rhythm and you probably want to punctuate the way it feels, the way you want it to feel. And as opposed to, you know, just very slavishly, you know, obeying the rules. And so that's the way I write. And, uh, and you always get another bite at the apple when it comes to Word choice of punctuation. I mean, nobody sure. nobody just writes and except actually I do it all the time. But nobody ought to just write and just put it out in the world. You know, you're right yeah. and let it cook for a couple of days and take another gander. Yeah, exactly. Well, this this has been proved three or four times, and and I, I think we got them all. And not sure. Uh, probably you know three weeks down the road, I'll go mm, missed that. You know, That's so it's uh, but it happens and. Uh, so you're right. I mean, you get a chance to go back through it again. But I had a friend, friend read this who, whole handbook in hand, went through my... And I just went, eh, 
Yeah. <laughs> You're killing me here, you know. Yeah. And that was, stop. I think that was what led to our subjective. Yeah, stop with the commas already, right. you know. So. Um, and so just real quick as we get ready to kind of pull into the stage, one of the last things we like to talk about here is is marketing efforts such as they are. Is is that something that you are interested in? Is besides coming on this world renowned podcast, do you do <laughs> much shilling? Well of course, you know, you you want lightning to strike, but but uh one of the things I'm probably uh, worse at in, in, in terms of, in terms of discipline is actually trying to, to sell the products once, once they're done. It's true of the music I've done, uh, and it's, it's probably true of these, but I'm getting better at that. Okay. So I'm, I'm beginning to think, you know, you, you need to put a little effort into, to getting this out. So it is hard to sell yourself. I mean, I, I think it feels kind of gross, but like, Hey, I wrote this great book and you should buy it. I don't know. But I, I can say that about your work. If somebody walks in, I can be like, Hey, check out this book. And I can rattle off a little bit of your bio and I can tell them about, it. I can tell them about your book, Tony. And I can just be like, Oh, these are great people. That's fascinating. It's a great week. Blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, have you written anything? I'm like, eh, that one over there, but let me type <laughs> out this other one, you know? And, and I, you know, my mother always, you know, would see me sort of cowering away and she's like, and I'm like, well, then you go sell my book, mom. Yeah, but it's yeah. just like, well, you wrote the thing, you know, so yeah, it's, it's yeah. a very weird point from, you know, we yeah. write these things to have them out in the world and then we get them out in the world. And we're like, yeah, okay. Well, 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 that's the real value in having, in having a publisher out of New York because that's what they do. And, uh, and, and I have gotten burned a couple of times, uh, by, uh, by seeing somebody appear on one of the morning shows. And of course the, the publisher own, publishers owned by the same network. Then they're hawking this thing shamelessly and you buy it and you go, Oh man, am I burned here? So yeah, so it is what it is. Absolutely. And so do you do like talks and signings or you just, do you just hope for the best or? Well, I, I had a publication party for the first book, and probably I think we did a fifty book run and sold over <laughs> sold over half of them and i 've sold a few off the internet i 've got them up as ebooks mm -hmm. and so you know it's but but over a period of time i 'm hoping i 'll begin to accumulate an audience uh, and I think that's that 's part of one of the things that happens if if you write uh, i 'm thinking now about John Irving who wrote three books. The publisher didn't push any of them. The second one is one of the funniest books ever written. It's called The Water Method Man. Uh, and then he cranked out this third one and threw it in and said, my three-book contract is over. And then uh, he went to a new publisher, and I will swear that, that this man took all of the stuff that he had been working on that was in his desk in pieces and just just kind of like a deck of cards fanned it together and said, okay, here's my next book. It's called The World According to Garp, which was an enormous hit. Smash turned into a movie. But if you read The World According, According to Garp, they're going along, they're going along. And, and one day, Mother said, let's move to Austria. And off they go to Austria. And it's like, what? You know? And there's this whole section in there called the Grill Sparkasse that, that was done while he was in Austria working on a national endowment for the arts grant. So, which are very nice. I know I got one of those. And uh, so uh, this is the Neuwelt and the stuff out of Germany came out of that. 
Uh, and if I'd been as smart as he was, I would have spent the entire year in Europe, uh, which is what he did. Uh, but you, you can just tell that, you know, chunk, chunk, he threw this thing together. Now the parts are really interesting. The parts are really terrific. But if you want to, if you want this to be a novel, beginning, middle and end, it, that, uh, just have a lot of trouble with it ain't, you know, so smart guy though. You know, here's my next novel. They pushed the bejesus out of it, and it did so well. In fact, I think I've forgotten who his first publisher was, but the first publisher sued him. <laughs> yeah, said said no. This last novel, it just kind of threw in. That's that doesn't fulfill your contract. This is the one we want. <laughs> You feel they would have just changed Should've the cover and said from the author of The World According to Garb. I mean, <laughs> yeah. exactly. That's what they do today. Oh, yeah. well, oh, I'm sure they did that. Yeah, of course. So. But, but they, wanted a piece of, they wanted a piece of Garb. So. Well, if anybody would like a piece of Don, we have both of his books uh, here at Saltwater Media in our shop. And we also have them online. The first one is Pokemon Rules and Other Stories. And the new one is The Nicotine Kid, which was an awesome story we didn't get to talk about today. But I... It was crazy interesting and fascinating and very unlike anything else of yours that I had read, so I was captivated immediately. But it's called The Nicotine Kid and Other Stories, and it is available, like I said, in, in our shop here in Berlin, and it's also in our on our online store at www.saltwatermedia.com. We have a shop button. You can find it right there. And do you have any any uh, a, a website or a social presence that you'd like to let everyone know about? Uh, just a, I just have a Facebook page, and I occasionally post the the title of the book up and go, please buy my books. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, well, but I don't have a website, so. Fair enough. Well, you can find me at my name backwards. It's O S S U R Y N O T. That's on all the social media. I'm meanest on Twitter. You are always meanest on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> And thank you very much for being on the podcast, Don. Appreciate it. Certainly my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Ton. Thank you. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Find us at saltwatermedia.com and on social media. Want to hear more? Just follow along by subscribing on iTunes to hear more behind-the-story stories. Want other people to hear more? Give us a great review on iTunes. Tell your story.